Section 6. Chapter 2, Part 5. The Trail is Taken Up. It was now Wednesday, February 21st, and all the careful detail work began to come together. It was this day that Detective Watson found the crew of train number 13 on the New York Central, which had taken Kinsman, Annie, and Splain aboard at Peekskill the afternoon of the robbery, after they had ridden out of New York in a taxicab to avoid possible police surveillance at the railroad stations. Commissioner Doherty dispatched Watson to Peekskill and Albany with thorough instructions. His motto in working out a case is, Supervision is half the battle. When you get to Albany, he said, go to that big hat store on Broadway near the station. I'll bet that's where Annie's new hat was bought. They sell the best millinery in the country outside of New York. Nothing important was learned at Peekskill, but at Albany, sure enough, Detective Watson found the saleswoman right in that big hat store who had sold the new hat and secured Annie's discarded headgear. The new hat had cost $25. The old one looked as though it might have cost 95 cents, a Division Street special. Its black velvet was of the cheapest grade. The famous little red roses proved to be, on close inspection, nothing more than little loops of pink cotton cloth, and the general state of the hat indicated that it was about time Annie had a new one. This interesting bonnet, however, seemed just then more handsome than any costly article of millinery ever smuggled over from Paris. It was immediately sent to New York by express, with a copy of the sales slip covering the purchase. The saleswoman was able to add one or two details of description, and remembered how, after the woman had selected a hat, the two men had joked about who was to pay for it. "'She's your girl,' said Splain, and so Kinsman had paid the bill with five five-dollar bills." Nothing could be learned as to the direction in which the two men meant to travel. Detective Watson now began a search among train crews running out of Albany, and Commission Doherty, in New York, got the Albany ticket sellers by long-distance telephone. His knowledge of how railroad tickets are sold, accounted for, taken up, canceled and checked by the auditing department, made it possible to sift matters down to the strongest kind of probability. After considerable telephoning, aided by Detective Watson on the spot, it was determined that Kinsman and Splain had been the purchasers of two consecutively numbered tickets for Chicago, sold together on Friday morning, twenty-four hours after the robbery, and that they had gone west on train number three, leaving Albany at 12.10 p.m. Their tickets were available for that train, and the conclusion was strengthened by calculating Annie's movements, for it was found that she had come back to New York the same day, between four and five in the afternoon. She had kept out of sight until she appeared at Myrtle Horn's lodging, 
and was reported by Matron Goodwin and Plant 21 on Tuesday. But she must have taken a train from Albany about the time that the men were starting for Chicago, reaching New York at 3.45 p.m. Commissioner Doherty felt that the chances of finding his men in Chicago were so good that, without wasting time in an investigation of the crew of train number three, he put Detective Daly and Claire aboard a Chicago train that same night. Kinsman and Splain would both find congenial company among the pugilists in Chicago. These detectives were given names to conceal their identity, and ordered to report under the code term of Orange Growers, to eliminate all flavor of police business. They received detailed instructions about where to go and what to do. Again, the commissioner covered the trail when it led out of New York by sending capable assistance, instead of merely wiring the police in other cities. Before the orange growers departed, the boss gave them a little talk about expenses. The detective attached to a municipal police force is very often hampered by fear of making unusual expenditures. Accounting routine is strict. Telegrams are often limited to the minimum of ten words, where a hundred are needed to send a working description or report. The long-distance telephone is used as a luxury, and in many instances, where the plainclothesman can get valuable information through an informant, he pays the shot out of his own pocket, because there is no other way of paying it and trusts to the chance that this private investment out of his salary will help him break a knotty case. Commissioner Doherty told the orange growers that they would be kept on this trail if it led all around the world. They must not consider expenditure when there was vital information to put on the wire. He expected them to turn to the long-distance telephone whenever they needed new instructions in a hurry. Briefly, he took the blinders and shackles off them, and sent them out to do good work, and the outcome justified this farsightedness. At that period of the winter, trains were delayed everywhere by storms, so the orange growers had opportunities to make inquiries at stations and railroad restaurants all along the line to Buffalo. They were in search of their brother, who was described in terms of Kinsman's personal appearance, and was supposed to be on his way somewhere with another man. At Syracuse, an observant waitress remembered their brother distinctly, having served both the men when their train stopped for supper. Finally, the two orange growers got snowed up in Michigan for a time, and there we will leave them for the present. Montani quizzed once more. By Thursday, many loose ends of the case were being brought together so effectually that the outlook seemed exceedingly bright, but only to the executive circle in Doherty's office. Outside, all was dark. Newspaper criticism had become more caustic than ever, and the public, after the ingrained habit of New York, 
was turning its attention to fresher news sensations. At a big annual dinner of police officials held that evening, February 22nd, the atmosphere of gloom resting upon the department was most tangible. The 1,400 guests, who were chiefly police inspectors, captains, and lieutenants, felt that a stigma lay upon the service with which they were identified. They had no means of knowing, of course, that one week from that night the gloom would have lifted, criticism be turned to praise, and that policemen generally would be, as a witty lieutenant put it, back to our official standing again, which never was so very high. Montani had called at police headquarters repeatedly, accompanied by his unseen shadowers. He professed to be anxious to furnish further information, if it lay in his power, and the commissioner chatted with him cordially, leading him to believe that he no longer rested under the slightest suspicion. On Friday, Doherty made an interesting effort to break Montani. He now had a minute physical description of Kinsman, as well as two photographs of him. The chauffeur was asked to describe once more the man who had sat upon the cab seat with him. The questions went over details from head to foot, and were prompted by details of Kinsman's real appearance. Montani said the man had large brown eyes, which was true. He remembered that he had talked with a good American accent, and used words not common to the criminal, which was also more or less true. He suddenly recalled a gold-filled tooth in the robber's upper right-hand jaw, a point already furnished by informants. In fact, as this new examination went on, it became clear to the commissioner that Montani was actually describing Kinsman, changing only one detail. He said that the robber had had a dark mustache, while it was certain that Kinsman had been smooth-shaven. Suddenly the commissioner tried what is known as a shot. The examiner in such an inquiry is often in possession of incriminating evidence. Instead of producing it bluntly as evidence, however, he will perhaps let it slip out bit by bit, as though by awkwardness, meanwhile maintaining an appearance of absolute confidence in the suspect's integrity. A classic example of this device is found in the Russian writer Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. The skillful shot is usually far more disconcerting than evidence produced openly to overwhelm, for the suspect assumes that the examiner really knows nothing and is merely blundered. So he is on his guard outwardly, but he also worries inwardly, and this trying conflict between inner doubt and the need for keeping up outer calm will often break him down completely. Doherty's shot was a photograph of Kinsman. By prearrangement, an assistant came into the office and began turning over some papers on the commissioner's desk. The photo of Kinsman popped out where Montani could see it plainly, and then was hurriedly put out of sight again. The commissioner scolded his assistant, and the latter stood shamefaced and silent. 
but in this instance the device failed. Montani not only betrayed no interest in Kinsman's picture, but took the awkward assistant's part and asked the commissioner not to scold him. Montani had planned his crime, fitted the plan with men, laid out every detail in his mind, and arranged his story beforehand. He expected to be arrested, and said so. He admitted that there were inconsistencies in his story, but hoped to clear them up. He had discussed the crime with Jess and Dutch, and had not been seen in the company of the other criminals. So, having settled on his story, Montani stuck to it without variation under every form of pressure. Others forgot what they had arranged as their defense, or departed from it, or broke down and confessed, but not Montani. He alone went to trial and stuck to his story until the end. End of Section 6